Okay, so we are starting our new series in uh, Peter's second letter, and we're just going to look at, this morning, we're just going to look at the uh, first two verses of the um, passage that we had read to us earlier by Sue Lady. It's a passage you're going to get to know over the next few weeks, um, because there is so much in there. We're going to take our time over it. Now, yesterday was uh, Wilson and Annalisa's wedding, and it was just a wonderful time. But several uh, years ago, when I was pretty much a, a brand new pastor here, um, Sue and I were at a um, were guests at another wedding, and at the dinner reception afterwards, we were invited to take part in uh, one of the games. And the game was, how well do you know your wife? And um, Sue was with another number of the other ladies were sent out of the room, and I was left there stranded um, in the room and asked questions about her. Okay, I still remember one of the questions: How many pairs of shoes does Sue own? Okay, and I'm sat there thinking, oh, I don't know. I mean, how's a man supposed to know that? I don't know. Is it is it four or five? I mean, there's her, there's her black pair, and there's her blue pair, and I think she's got a brown pair, and then her, there are her sports trainers, that, that's four, and, oh, and her hiking boots, five. She's got five pairs. And the guy who is sat there next to me looks at me like I am a complete idiot. <laughs> and he says, you clearly do not know your wife. And, and then they call Sue and the other ladies back in, and they ask her, how many pairs of shoes do you own? And she goes, well, counting my hiking boots, I'd say five. <laughs> and um, and uh, the, the guy sitting next to me just looks at me and says, your wife only has five pairs of shoes? Mine has 25 and counting. And I'm sat there thinking, 25 pairs of shoes? What, is, what do you do with 25 pairs of shoes? And that bothered me the rest of the evening. And, I, and, I, and something dawned on me okay, as a new pastor. I realized two things. Number one, I realized I did know my wife, but I clearly did not know his wife. And, and clearly had a lot to learn about other people's wives generally. Okay, now, why, why to, I know that's sexist, but there you go. Okay, why do I tell you that? Because one of the major themes in this letter, which we're going to look at over the next few weeks and months, is knowledge. Who do you know? How well do you know them? What do you know about them? Look how the letter begins, verse 2. The knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord... It's not talking about God's, what God knows. It's talking about your knowledge of God. Okay, that's how it starts. But look how the letter ends, the very last verse of the letter. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. So knowing God, you, me, us, knowing God, are the two bookends of this letter. And in between, Peter keeps on bringing this subject of knowing God up. And if you think about it, that presents a challenge to our current culture, doesn't it? 
Because someone might say, you know, maybe this is you if you're not yet a Christian. So someone might say, well, you know what, I, I don't really believe you, you can know God like that. I mean, not personally. Yeah, I, I like to think of God as the, you know, the universal consciousness or as the great cloud of unknowing. As I say, maybe, maybe that is you. You know, you're a bit mystical. Maybe even a pantheist. You know, God's everywhere and nowhere. So how could you know him personally? Or maybe if you're not a mystic or a pantheist, maybe you are, you know, again, if you're not a Christian, or, you know, maybe you're a rationalist. And you could be an agnostic atheist rationalist. You could also be a religious rationalist. Just think about an agnostic or atheist rationalist. You know, someone might say, you, you might say, well, you know what? I don't really think there is a God. So how could you know him? And anyway, I wouldn't believe in God that he existed unless I could empirically prove his existence. I'd want the facts and the figures. But you could also be a rationalist like that, but be a religious one. You know, maybe you were brought up in a Christian home or a religious home. Maybe you've studied philosophy or theology, and you know lots about God. You know lots about doctrine. You know lots about theology, philosophy. You could debate at length about God's existence or not, or his nature. But like the agnostic, your knowledge, your interest is with facts and figures. But do you know him? As we're going to see through this letter, Peter says, there is a God and you can know him. You can know him personally, like a husband knows his wife or a wife knows her husband. And you can know that you know. And when you do, Peter says, it can have a profound impact on your life. So we're going to look at three things. An incredible faith, a doubted faith, and the grounds for faith. First point then, an incredible faith. Look at, look at verse 1. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Okay, so this is Peter writing. He's one of the original 12 disciples of Jesus. And in chapter 3, he says that this is now the second letter that I am writing to you. Which if the first letter is First Peter, and there's good reason to think that it is, the people he's writing this letter to are probably the same recipients, the same people that he wrote to in 1 Peter. These are early Christians living in what we now know as modern-day Turkey. And Peter's writing because he says, verse 14, I know that the putting off of my body will be soon. Okay, so he's probably a prisoner in Rome, and he knows that his execution, the date for his execution, is drawing near. How would that focus your mind? If that was you, if you were sat in a Roman prison cell, and you knew you know, the other prisoners are being led out to the Colosseum, and you know that your day is coming, how would that focus your mind? And if you knew that you had time to write one last letter, what would you write? Who would you write to and what would you write to them about? Because this, is this, is, this letter is what that is for Peter. And look how he introduces himself. Simeon Peter. 
Now, just, you know, the, um, India landed the um, probe on uh, um, the moon this last week. And just like any number of the craters on the surface of the moon tell you that an asteroid hit, Peter's name carries the marks of the impact that knowing Christ has had on his life, doesn't it? Now, Simeon, Simon, was the name that his parents gave him. It was who he was. Peter, the rock, was the name that Christ gave him. On this rock, I will build my church. This, Simon, is who you will be, Peter. A life transformed by knowing Christ. I want to ask you, as we start this series, does your life bear the marks of just such an encounter? Does your life, does your character, does the way you see the world, does the way you handle your, your money, your gifts, your talents, your resources, do they bear the marks of knowing Christ, of an encounter with him? Because Peter and the whole of the New Testament says, it can, it really can. You see, think what Peter knew about Jesus. One day, Peter, Simon, Simeon, Working on the beach in Galilee, Jesus comes along and he hears Jesus call him to follow him. And Simon, Peter, follows. On another day, he had watched in his own house as Jesus stood over the bed of his mother-in-law, of Peter's mother-in-law, who was sick with a fever. And he watched as Jesus commanded the fever to leave her. And he saw her instantly healed. And Peter had been in the boat when Jesus told him to put the nets down into the sea again. And Peter, I mean, he's an expert in his trade. He knows there is no point doing it, but he does it anyway. And as that net is overwhelmed by fish, Peter is overwhelmed by Christ, by his presence next to him. And he's overwhelmed by his own unworthiness to the point of demanding, asking Jesus to leave him alone. And he'd been in the boat when the storm came up on the lake and Peter, fisherman, sailor, he knows that their lives are going down with that boat only to watch as Jesus commands the storm to stop. And if Peter was afraid in the storm, the Gospels tell us he was terrified in the calm. Because who is this man in the boat? And he's heard Jesus teaching, and he'd seen lepers healed, and paralyzed people walk. And demons flee. And he had seen a dead girl raised up. As Jesus said to her, little girl, honey, it's morning. Time to wake up. As if death is just a passing night. And the dawn is coming. 
And on the night Jesus was betrayed, Peter had watched Jesus plead with God to take the cup from him. And he had stood in the courtyard as Jesus was on trial. And three times Peter had denied that he knew Jesus, that he knew anything about him. And then if you look at the Gospels closely, you'll see that Jesus looks at him through a window and Peter feels Jesus' gaze on him. And as the cock crows, Peter flees a broken man. And Peter had seen Jesus crucified and he had heard him forgive those who did it. And he had watched him die. But then on Sunday morning, he had seen him alive again, heard him speaking words of peace, and he'd watched him eat a fish of all things, proving that he was alive. And so if Peter's life had already been turned on its head by knowing Christ, after the resurrection, his life would never be the same again. And yet, of all of those events that he could have recounted, the one that Peter mentions in this letter is Jesus' transfiguration. Verses 16 to 18, we'll look at it in a few weeks' time. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honour and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice. Hundreds of examples he could have given. Why pick this one? Because it told him this is who Jesus really is. Just for a moment, the veil was taken back and Peter saw who Jesus really is. This man that you've sailed with, this man that you've walked with, this man that you've listened to, this man that you have watched, this man that you know, this man is no mere man. I don't know about you, wouldn't you like to have experienced some of what Peter experienced? I mean, maybe you're here, maybe you're examining Christianity and you're, you're just beginning to wonder, is there something in this or not? Should I, should I pursue this or not? Or maybe you're already a Christian, but you're struggling with doubts. And you're wondering, man, is it really worth it? And you hear about Peter and you think, easy for Peter. If I could have experienced what he experienced, man, that would make it easier to believe. Except look how Peter addresses his readers. Verse 1. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. And Peter is not writing to a group of fellow apostles, is he? He's not even writing to a bunch of, you know, American megachurch pastors. He's writing to men and women who never even owned a Bible. They'd never even seen Jesus. These are just normal, everyday Christians who are struggling to stay in the faith under growing persecution. And here is Peter saying, your faith is of equal standing with ours. Is that just Peter being nice? But we all know it's untrue. Is that like someone saying, you know, Martin, you and the other rock, 
You know, Dwayne Johnson. You are so similar. You know, you're both bald. And your physique. Martin, there is nothing. You could not get a credit card between you and The Rock. Nice, but not true. No. Okay, when Peter says their faith, your faith, is of equal standing to his. He's using a phrase about equal civic status. He's not saying, hey, you and me, you know, our experiences of God, what, what we both know about God are identical. You know, hey, look, we're twins separated at birth. He's not saying that. He's saying there are no second-class citizens in God's kingdom. There are no elite saints up here and you plebs down there. Your faith, your trust in Christ gives you exactly the same privileges and honours as me. Just think about that. Think of what that means. It means that when God sees you and looks upon you, if you are trusting him, it means that his heart is as much filled with love towards you as it was towards Peter or Paul or any of the other apostles. It means that he accepts you and welcomes you just as much as he accepted them. It means that all of your sins have been washed away, no record of them kept just as they were of Peter's and the others. It means that when he hears you praying, you, me, even when it's awkward and we're hesitant, his ears are as attentive to you praying as they ever were to Peter. It means that when you fall on your face in sin, he is as full of compassion to pick you up and to brush you down as he was with them. It means that the spirit that he has put inside you is the very same spirit that he put inside Peter and the others, that he is as close to you as he ever was with them, that you are just as much a beloved child of God as they were. As Peter says, you have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. But do you believe that? Do you believe it? Or do you find yourself thinking, if only, if only? Because instead of feeling loved by God, I just feel guilty. Instead of feeling heard, I feel ignored. Instead of feeling close to God, I feel, I, I feel like he's distant if I feel anything at all. Why is that? Why do you doubt it? Second point then, a doubted faith. I want to give you a couple of reasons. There are probably lots. Well, I'll give you three actually. But just to start off with two, probably many more. I want you to ask yourself, what's your master and what's the message? What's the master of your life? And what's the message that's shaping your life? Look again at how Peter introduces himself. Verse 1. Simeon Peter, 
a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. And the word for servant is the word for a bondservant, for a slave. Okay, ask Peter who he is, and he would reply, I'm a slave. Hardly an aspirational title, is it? What do, what do I want to be when I grow up? I want to be a slave. Okay, that is not the sort of thing you hear. And yet, something or someone is going to be your master, is already your master. Later on in chapter two, we'll look at this uh, when we get there. Peter says, whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. And Peter's not, that's not theoretical, is it? Peter is talking from experience because there was a time when Peter was enslaved by what other people thought of him. It's why this great rock of a fisherman crumbled before a young servant girl who happened to ask him, hey, you know Jesus, don't you? And if something other than Christ is your ultimate master, you are going to have a hard time believing that your faith is of equal standing. Just think how it works. Let's say that, like Peter, you are enslaved to what other people think of you. Okay, that'll mean that how you feel about yourself will go up or down with your performance or your appearance. Okay, you will feel great and you will think that God thinks you are great when other people tell you that you are great based on your performance or your appearance. But when they don't, because your performance slips or the image cracks, you're going to have a hard time believing that God loves you. Because what is there to love? Or what if your career, or what you do outside of your career, what if that's your master? What if that's where you spend all of your time, your excess time, your free time, or your energy, you plough it into this other thing, you give yourself to it, your, your work, your sport, your interest. That's what's controlling your time. You're giving yourself to this. But as a result, your relationship with God is starved of oxygen. No wonder he feels distant. Or maybe you'd say, as our culture trains you to say, hey, I'm not, I'm not enslaved to anything or anyone. I am my own master. Think about that. What does that mean you're enslaved to? To yourself. To self-centeredness to self-absorption, to self-interest. And those things have never been great fertile soil for love and knowledge of others to grow in. Or maybe some pain from your past or some substance or addiction you are using to numb that pain has you in its hold. Or maybe anger or bitterness has taken root in your heart and you can't shake it. It's got you. Or maybe you look at someone else's life and she's got a partner or he's got a decent job and envy is wrapping its tentacles around your heart and these things are controlling you. But as they do, what do they do to that sense that your faith is of equal standing, that you are as loved and as blessed and as smiled upon by God as Peter, it's just not there, is it? 
You see, it's not that the privileges and honours that you enjoy as a Christian are taken away from you as punishment for serving some other master. It is that when you serve or are controlled by this other thing, it's like being in England, a fog comes down. Or the Netherlands, a fog comes down and you can't see properly. Or this grime covers your heart. You can't see the truth of your equal standing faith. Like the sun disappearing behind a grey cloud, the, the sun is still there, but so is the cloud. Remove the cloud, have Christ as your master, as Peter does, and you will soon begin to feel the warmth of the sun. So who's your master? But secondly, second reason you can doubt the equal standing of your faith, verse 1 again. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. And to be an apostle was to be an ambassador. It was to be chosen and to be sent by Jesus. But it was also to be a messenger. And even in just these two verses that we are looking at today, you get a glimpse of Peter's message, don't you? what he's saying about Jesus, what he knows about Jesus. He calls Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the long-promised king in the line of David. He calls him, we'll look at this in a minute, our God and saviour. And he calls him Jesus, our Lord. Probably, absolutely none of that surprises you. you. You know that. Sure, but think how that would have read in first century Roman culture. Because who was Lord? Who was king except Caesar? And from the time of Augustus, the emperor onwards, the emperor was Sota, savior, the one who had saved the empire from political chaos. And who but Caesar could claim to be God or a son of God? And so the message that Peter proclaimed collided with the message that the empire proclaimed, the message about who was king, who was saviour, and of what should be worshipped. So let me ask you, what message are you listening to about those three things? What message is shaping you about who is king, who is saviour, and about who or what should have your devotion? And could that explain why your faith is struggling? Let's just think of some examples, okay? If you are filling your mind or your heart with one YouTube video or podcast after another about this or that politician who is the only one who can rescue us from chaos, no wonder a cloud has settled over your heart and there's no vitality to your faith. You've got your saviour wrong. Or maybe having the next great experience or the latest stuff is what has your heart. We would never say we worship that, but it sure has our devotion. And yet as Jesus warned, like weeds crowding out a plant, It's this desire for other things or the cares of this world, this wanting this other stuff. It's this that can strangle the spiritual life out of us. We think that pursuing this stuff is life. But in reality, it is suffocating what is really life. 
Or maybe in the books you read or the podcasts you listen to, you've surrounded yourself with the message that you're the king and your personal thriving and flourishing is in your hands. You're your own saviour. And the good life is for you to define. It's for you to obtain. You may be a Christian. You may have a faith of equal standing with Peter's and the honours and the privileges of that faith are yours. They are like an immense inheritance kept in a vault for you that you can access at any time. But that message that that vault is there and open to you never quite gets through because all of this other stuff is filling your airways and that British fog settles down over your heart. Okay, but there's a third reason. So who's your master? What or who is your master? What's the message that you're listening to? But there's a third reason that you may sense your faith is nothing like Peter's. Okay, look again at verse 1. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. Okay, you could read that and think, okay, so faith, this faith is something that I need to work for. It's something that I need to obtain. And if I, if I live a good enough life, if I pray enough, if I worship with enough passion, if I give enough money, if I make enough sacrifices, God will grant me these honours and privileges of faith. And we can begin to think that faith is like a university degree to be obtained by hard work or a position to be obtained by years of experience, except that is not what this word obtained means. This word obtained means something that you have received, obtained as a gift from another, something that you've obtained because you've been given it. And maybe this faith of equal standing is not yet your experience because you think Christianity is about what you have to do when all along it's about what Christ has done for you. Last point then, the ground of faith. Okay, look again at verse 1. To those who have... Yeah. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. So, does your faith depend on you being a good enough Christian, on your righteousness? Is that why the sunshine of God's grace can shine on you? No. Peter says... It depends on the righteousness of Christ. You have been made rich because he became poor. You are welcomed and accepted because at the cross, Christ was forsaken. Your sins are forgiven because Christ has borne them for you. And he has absorbed the wrath of God against them for you. And you can know and experience the warmth of the sunshine of God's grace upon your life. Because at the cross, Christ experienced the darkness. As the sun was blotted out, 
as the clouds came across. And all of our failure to live as God wants us to live was counted to him. And all of his perfections were counted to us. And as you trust in what Christ has done for you, not in what you do, in what he has done for you, God looks on you in him and says, you are beautiful. As Paul writes, for our sake, he made him Christ to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, I don't know, maybe you hear that and think, you know, along with some of the new atheists, that's immoral. Okay, God punishing his own son for our sin, that's immoral. Except look how Peter describes Jesus, verse 1. Our God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And the Greek construction is really clear. He's talking about one person, that Christ is both God and Saviour. That is who has suffered and died for you. God himself, God the Son. And that is why your faith is of equal standing with Peter's. Because God stepped into your place and he absorbed all of his wrath against your sin upon himself so that you might stand forgiven. So that you can be cleansed, so that you can be accepted and made righteous. So that you now have that vault of all the riches and privileges of heaven open to you. And when you know that, not just theoretically, like the rationalist, or fluffily, like the mystic, when you know that deep in your heart, when that is the message that you are listening to, when that is the message that you are filling your heart and mind with, it will profoundly affect you. Firstly, it'll deliver you from slavery from all of these other things. Because when you know that God loves you, your craving for the approval of others will slowly dry up. When you know that he's the thing of supreme value, you're still gonna value your work, you're still gonna value your leisure, you're still gonna even value your stuff, your possessions, but you are gonna start giving them their right value rather than the ultimate value. When your heart is filled with love and gratitude for him because of the way he has loved you, rather than your heart being filled with anger or bitterness or envy against others because their life seems to be better than yours, you will begin to show them the love and the grace that Christ has shown you. You see, we're all going to serve one master or another, but it's only Christ who is kind. As Augustine prayed, O oh God, to know you is life, to serve you is freedom, and to praise you is the soul's joy and delight. Firstly, to set you free from slavery to other stuff. Secondly, knowing the truth of what Christ has done for you will fill your heart. Verse 2, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Don't you want that? I want that. 
In a world that is increasingly confused and noisy, doesn't your heart long for peace? In a world that is filled with finger pointing and anger, then you want grace and kindness to increasingly mark you. Well, Peter says, hey, have Christ as your master. Allow the message of all that he has done for you to shape you. Live in the good of all the honors and the privileges that trusting him gives you. And growing, multiplying, exponentially increasing grace and peace will be yours. And then let's go out into the world this week and live it and share it. Let's pray.